Uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Obadiah. Um, we got two-thirds of the way through this morning, and we'll finish up tonight. If you uh, weren't here this morning or were working in a class otherwise occupied, our pastor is preaching a revival in Austin, Texas. He preached twice this morning, and uh, he's preaching this evening, uh, so pray for him. Um, but we're going to keep going, and we'll finish up uh, this minor prophet tonight. And as I said this morning, minor prophet just means short book. There's a lot here, a lot of major truths here, really, um, for Obadiah's audience and for God's people today. So Obadiah, if you found your uh, spot, if you didn't find your spot because you're still looking from this morning, you can just read it on the screen, beginning in verse uh, 15. By the way, who has heard um, an expositional sermon on Obadiah before, not including this morning? If you had heard a sermon on Obadiah before church this morning, raise your hand. Ricky? Nick? Okay. Not very many of you. So now all of you have, especially after tonight. Congratulations. I hope. I mean, you may not enjoy it, but congratulations, whatever the case. Uh, we'll begin in verse 15, and then we'll Uh, We'll finish the book, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll see what God has for us in his word this evening. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thy own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions and the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau. And they of the plain, the Philistines. And they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. If you were in here this morning as we looked at the first 14 verses of this little book. We talked about false hope. Tonight, we'll talk about true hope. True hope. Bow with me just as we uh, pray before we begin. Father, bless your word tonight as it is read and as it is taught. The things we don't know, teach us. The things we don't have, give us. And what we are not yet that you want us to be, make us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We talked about, in the first 14 verses, Obadiah's strong words 
for the Edomites. If you remember, and if you're otherwise not familiar with the book of Obadiah, the Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem. This is when the southern kingdom fell in 587 B.C. It was an 18-month-long siege. Now, the Edomites um, didn't really invade with the Babylonians. They sort of stood back like vultures, waiting to loot and steal, and even, we found out, sell some of the Israelite refugees as slaves back to the Babylonians. They thought this was a great opportunity. Israel's God was obviously defeated. The Babylonians were the ones running the show, so the Edomites decided they were going to make friends with the right people and be on the side of Babylon. But they made a bad decision. Because they failed to believe God's promises to their kin, Jacob, because they thought Israel's God would not retaliate and they could get away with whatever they wanted to get away with, God promised that the Edomites, though they had their cities in the mountains, in the peaks, though they seemed safe and secure from God, God promised that he was going to bring them down and destroy them. Now, there's two audiences here, and the first one is a little obvious, right? The first audience is the Edomites. Obadiah presumably preached this to the people of Edom and later wrote it down for God's people to read. So then there's a second audience, isn't there? And the second audience, in fact, most likely the primary audience, is not the Edomites. But it is rather the Jews living in exile who would read this years later. Now, as the Jews read the message of Obadiah, think about what may be going on in their minds. They've lost their cities, they've lost their homes, they've lost all of their possessions. Nebuchadnezzar was ruthless, and what Nebuchadnezzar didn't take, the Edomites took. As God promised, since they failed to keep their responsibilities in the covenant, God judged them, they lost their land, Babylon scattered them, now they are living as exiles in a pagan land. They read Obadiah, And I suppose there is some encouragement here in these first 14 verses. They remember the Edomites acting as if no one was going to stop them. And so maybe it's a little encouraging for the Jews living in exile now to read, well, they have it coming to them. God's going to judge them. God remembered what they did to us. God hasn't forgotten. He's promised to judge these Edomites. That may be a little bit encouraging. But if Obadiah's preaching ended in verse 14 and we would have a problem. Some things would be left unresolved if Obadiah's message ended where my message ended during our morning service. The story doesn't seem like it should end here. Do you see that? Because the Israelites hear what we heard this morning. Okay, we lost everything. Our lives suck. And the Edomites are going to lose everything and their lives are going to suck too. The end. Well, is that all God's going to do? Like they ruined our lives, God's going to ruin their lives and then that's it? Like that's the end of the story? We lost our stuff, they're going to lose our stuff, nobody gets stuff? God's just going to even things out? Our land is destroyed, their stuff is destroyed too? Is that what all that God is going to do? 
In other words, the first two-thirds of Obadiah's message raise this question in the minds of the readers. Does God only have enemies? So Obadiah finishes the story. (laughs) He finishes the sermon, and tonight we finish the sermon. God's enemies will be destroyed because they had a false hope. But the good news is that there is also a true hope coming for God's people. In other words, the end of Obadiah's prophecy is not Edom facing God's judgment, though that is part of it. The end of Obadiah's prophecy is Edom facing God's judgment and God's people finding forgiveness and restoration. So yes, God will judge his enemies, but he also remembers his people that his enemies hurt. And that's where we turn for true hope in these verses 15 through 21. Now it's really important to know that when you look at verse 15, at the very beginning of verse 15, Obadiah switches gears because he talks about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And this phrase really is the hinge for this whole book. In the prophets, this term refers not to just a single act of judgment on people, although it includes God's singular acts of judgment, but the day of the Lord means much, much more than that. The day of the Lord for the prophets refers to the way God is going to judge in the here and now, but it also goes beyond that to refer to the day, the time, the age in which God keeps all of his other promises, not just to his enemies but all the promises he keeps to the enemies that have become his people and believe in him. We find this term in the New Testament. Paul uses it all the time. It's also called the day of Christ because we find out Jesus Christ is the Lord. It's the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, or sometimes the apostles refer to it just as the day. The day. And then we're told that something is going to happen in verse 15 upon All the heathen, that is, all of those who reject God. In other words, Obadiah is not just talking about the Edomites getting their comeuppance anymore. No, no, he's he's taken the telescope and he's zoomed out way, way, way farther than that. We're not just talking about the Edomites getting judged, though the Edomites will be judged. They'll lose their nation, and they did. They did. But now he's talking about the day, and he's talking about all of the heathen. That is the future in which God keeps all of his promises and judges all those who rebel against him. And, as we're going to find out, the day that God saves all of his people. So Obadiah is preaching about Edom, but he's not just preaching about Edom. God has much bigger plans for the nations and bigger plans for his people than judging Edom. So here's what we have in verse 15 and 16. God will judge all nations. Verses 15 and 16, God judges all the nations. But there's two ultimate realities here. God judges all the nations, and God restores all of his people. The second half of verse 15, verse 15, if if you look down at your Bibles, God tells Edom that what they have done to others will be done back to them. The the medicine they served, they will have to take it. They destroyed a city, they've stolen property, they've ruined lives, and it's all going to come back on them. They will experience the havoc and the destruction that they wrought on others. And then verse 16 sort of universalizes this. 
verse 16, again, we have this phrase, all the heathen, and it talks a lot about uh, drinking. Now, it seems that the Edomites, remember, they weren't necessarily enlisted as soldiers to fight alongside the Babylonians. They were sitting back and watching as Jerusalem was, was being taken over, as they were under siege. So it seems that while the Edomites were waiting, while the Edomites were waiting, that they were doing a lot of drinking, which was sinful. They were sort of parting, living it up as it were. Jerusalem's being destroyed. They're being killed. They're all being slaughtered. So we're just going to sit here and drink it up. And God says, well, the day's coming. The day's coming when all the heathen are going to drink like you were, except this is something else. They will swallow down and then will be as though they had not been. They're all going to be drinking, but then they're going to be destroyed. How destroyed? Destroyed in such a way as if they had never existed. Obadiah tells them there was a day you were drinking Edomites and now there's a day where all the nations will drink and the result is total destruction. This image repeatedly shows up in the prophets. It's this image of the cup of God's wrath. And when God gives his wrath, when God judges people, when God judges a generation, when God judges a nation, when he gives them the cup of his wrath, this wine that they gulp down destroys them. This is used The same metaphor is used in Revelation 14, as well as in the life of Jesus. Because when Jesus is in the garden, preparing to take God's wrath for us, preparing to drink the cup, that's what he refers it, that's that's how he refers to it. Now since 14, I know this image has only gotten darker, right? So, so far, um, verses 15 and 16 just seem to be worse than what we talked about this morning. So David, where's the hope? After all, the Jews who are reading this are in captivity, waiting in Babylon, waiting in exile, waiting for God to answer their prayers, waiting for God to respond to their laments that we have in the Psalms, waiting for God to save them. And this God, though he promises to judge Edom and then he promises to judge all the world, well, what does he have for his people? That's great, God, that you're going to execute vengeance, not just on Edomites, but on everyone. Everyone's going to taste your wrath. Okay, well, what's in it for us? What are you going to do for your promised people? Well, the day of the Lord entails something else, thankfully. Not only does the day of the Lord mean judgment, but in verses 17 through 21, the day of the Lord means restoration. God restoring his people, God keeping his promises, God giving his people back what they, what we have lost in our sin. So the day of the Lord brings judgment, but the day of the Lord also means restoration, making things right again. Verse 17. I love verse 17. Isn't this an amazing verse? This is so amazing. If you read the Old Testament and you read about just the failures of Israel to follow the Lord, if, if you read the stories about the kings, so many of whom were sinful, so many of whom served the idols of their neighbors and failed to follow God, and failed to enact his laws. What what we see in the history of the Old Testament is exile, failure, and loss. Over and over and over again. But verse 17 says that God's people are headed for deliverance, holiness, and abundance. 
Now, these aren't just words. These are promises that God is making. He is putting his character on the line to say these things are going to happen. And if you're familiar with the history of God's people up to this point, verse 17 is kind of hard to believe. Deliverance? Really? Now, think about the Jews sitting in a Babylonian slum somewhere reading this. God, you're going to bring deliverance? What are we doing here? God, you're going to bring holiness? (laughs) What? Not only did we not have it together, our leaders didn't even have it together. God, don't you know about what Ezekiel said about what was going on in the temple? Holiness? And we're going to possess our possessions? God, we don't have anything. We're exiles. We don't have our own property. We don't have our own stuff. We don't even feel like we have our own lives. And yet, God, you're saying that you're going to do something to bring all of this back? Can you, can you try to empathize and see how hard it would have been for them to hear this? Can you? Now, we've thought about this idea of a mountain before, haven't we, in this book? God, in a sort of, he's sort of mocking the Edomites, but he's meant also he's, he's trying to encourage his people. God can talk about mountains too. Now, the Edomites loved to talk about their mountains. They had cities up in the mountains. They were safe. Yahweh would never get to them. They would hide out in those caves up in the peaks. They would be just fine. They could do whatever they wanted. God would never find out. And, well, that didn't turn out very well. But God has a mountain too. Verse 17. But God's mountain is different. Because this mountain sanctuary that God has for his people will be there forever. (laughs) When God, when the day of the Lord comes, this is a mountain that won't fall. This is a mountain that doesn't just seem like it's impenetrable. It actually is. It doesn't just seem unstoppable. It actually is. The Edomites have their mountain and it will fall. But God has his own mountain for his people. Verse 18 is really interesting because there's some interesting imagery here. Uh, There's fire, flame, stubble. Now, for the Jews, up till this point, it had seemed like uh, Babylon and Edom were the judge, jury, and executioner, and Israel, uh, Judah in particular, was left in the ruins. In other words, were the stubble, Babylon is the fire. Our kings are the stubble. Nebuchadnezzar is the flame. He is the devouring force. He is the one who conquers. We just sit in the wreckage. But God has some different imagery in mind. No, no, here it's his enemies who are stubble. It's his enemies who are destroyed, and it's Jacob who is a fire. By the way, he also mentions Joseph. Now, why is that significant? Well, because Obadiah was all about the southern kingdom. Joseph, the tribes of Joseph, Joseph were with the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom had been scattered by Assyria a long time ago. A long time ago. They were completely dispersed. They were all over the place. God's not just talking about restoring what Edom had taken. He's talking about something much, much, much bigger here by including Joseph. Are you still with me? I'll come back out of the weeds. God says that, it will, that there is coming a day when the people of God will be the ones possessing power. 
The people of God will be the ones inheriting the earth, as Jesus would say. And that the kingdom of man is what will be reduced to rubble. The kingdom of man, which is often symbolized in Babylon. It seems powerful. It seems unstoppable. It seems like that this kingdom of man calls all the shots. But God says the day is coming when the kingdom of man will be rubble. When God's enemies will be the ones on the other side of this conflict. And all of his people will be restored, not just Judah, but all of his people will be restored to live under his blessing and rule. Then verse 19 and 20, this is really interesting. Um, Some of you may have went to sleep when I read verse 19 and 20 earlier. It may sound like a geography quiz, uh, but this is really cool because it's a list that sort of builds with anticipation. He begins with the territory of Edom. It'll belong to God, Esau. The Philistine city-states will belong to God. Ephraim and Samaria will belong to God. Gilead will belong to God. Zarephath, which is, was on Israel's northern border, this had been gone for years. It will belong to God. Sephred would have been a long trek for exiles from Jerusalem. It was a long, long, long way from where the exiles were. But one day even it would belong to God. And the point is the image that Obadiah is giving us by getting all these different cities that for the people would have seemed like in very different places, the point that Obadiah is getting to is that there is no length God will not go to to restore his people. That there's no limits on what God has in mind in what he's going to give back to his people when the day of the Lord comes. Here's the point. Everything will belong to God. Nothing will belong to the kingdom of man. Babylon will own nothing. Edom will own nothing. God's enemies will own nothing. God will own everything on that day. And then verse 21, God promises that this this alternative mountain, this false mountain, this kingdom of man mountain will be subdued by God's people and God's people will be ruling over it and judging it and not Edom. Verse 21 really gives us the whole idea of verses 15 through 21 and it ends like this. Obadiah says, let me just describe it in a phrase for you. <laughs> if you want to know what all this means, Obadiah says, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall shall be the Lord's. So here is the message of Obadiah 15 to 21. I want to give this to you, and then I want to talk about what it means for us. Because God is king, the day of the Lord will not only bring destruction to his enemies, but restoration to his people. God's people in exile in Babylon needed to know that God was not done with them they may have felt like he was. God's people needed to know that God wasn't ignorant of what their enemies had done to them. Have you ever felt like God's forgotten you? Have you ever been hurt so deeply that you wonder if God even knows about what your enemies have done to you? Have you ever had something said about you that was so hurtful that you've wondered, how could God let someone say that about me? And, and their lives go on as normal, and nothing bad happens to them. And you're thinking, how does God let people get away with that stuff? Have you ever had someone cheat you financially, and they go on to thrive? And you wonder, why does God let that kind of stuff happen? 
Well, you and I have had no doubt different ways of differing degrees in which we have been wronged and it seems as if God just looks past it. But if you and I have experienced this, think how much God's people would have felt this in Babylon. Now, yes, God told them captivity was coming. That didn't make it any better feeling when it came. We believe in the one true God. We serve the one true God. And yet, Babylon, every, all the dominoes are falling for them in the right way. They get whatever territory they want. They get whatever slaves they want. They do whatever it is they want to do. Their crops are coming in great. Their soldiers are multiplying. And we have nothing. Does God not care? Is he not going to have our back? It sure seems like he doesn't. And so they wonder, is this really all there is? We disobey us? We disobey God, he chastises us? Is this all that God can do is punish us? Is he not also going to punish our enemies? And then if he does punish our enemies, is he not going to give us anything else? Obadiah wants them to know, listen, the day of the Lord is coming, God will take back what belongs to him. Now in 538 BC, Zerubbabel brought back the first wave of captives to Jerusalem, followed by successive waves, and more and more Jews returned to Jerusalem. And and there is a partial fulfillment of this promise in that. But Obadiah has something much greater in mind when he says that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And John and James and Paul and Peter carry on this theme in the New Testament. When they promise us, Not the strip of land that Babylon took, but a new earth. Didn't Jesus say that the meek would inherit the earth? That may be hard to believe right now. And no doubt for the exiles in Babylon, it was hard to believe that one day the kingdom would be the Lord's. And yet this is our hope. Babylon doesn't get to write the end of the story. The world doesn't get to write the end of the story. Those that have hurt you and betrayed you and have wronged you and seem to not be facing any judgment for it from God, they don't get to write the end of the story. God is king, and not only will he punish, God will restore his people. In this morning's text, we were reminded that being a Christian means renouncing all of our trust in false hopes. But tonight we can learn this. Obadiah helps us see not only the emptiness of false hopes, but the value of true hope. This was the hope that would get those exiles through their 70 years in Babylon, but it's much more than that. This is the hope that will sustain us. That this life is not all there is. That the day of the Lord is coming. That Jesus is coming back. It's possible for Christians to fall into a kind of spiritual nihilism where they think everything is only getting worse. Now, God's judgment is not pretty. So it's true that some things do get worse. But some Christians can somehow, amazingly, read the Bible and they come away with some cliche like this. Well, things are only going to get worse. It's like, have you read like the other 90% of the Bible? Do you know where all of this ends? I'm convinced that while we as Christians agree with what the Bible says about our hope for the future, we often fail to act on what it says. And our lives 
our behaviors, what we say and what we think is more indicative about, uh, of people that believe there is nothing good in the future. We say we believe that Jesus is coming back, but we don't seem to act like we care. We claim to believe that one day God's going to give us a new earth, that this is what we have in our future, but we don't really seem to believe it if we look at our lives. Being a Christian doesn't just mean abandoning empty hopes. It means embracing something true and better. I love this conversation in Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Christian is leaving the city of destruction. He's talking to some of his friends. And uh, he encourages Obstinate to come with him. And you can tell by the name, Obstinate doesn't make it to the celestial city. It's kind of a dead giveaway. Like most of the people you meet in Pilgrim's Progress, it's like, well, talkative, I wonder what he's going to do. Well, uh, Obstinate does exactly what you think he's going to do. And he is shocked that Christian would want to leave the city of destruction. So he says, what? Leave our friends and our comforts behind us? Yes, said Christian, because that all which you shall forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of that I am seeking to enjoy. Obstinate. What are the things you seek since you leave all the world to find them? Christian, I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. When, when John Bunyan imagines the archetypal Christian, he imagines someone whose neighbors don't understand why he would sacrifice so much. By the way, Bunyan lived that out because he's writing this in prison for preaching the gospel. But obstinate's question doesn't seem to come to us very often. When was the last time a non-Christian was completely befuddled that's a fun word, by the way, about how you live. When was the last time a non-believer could not understand the way you live your life because of what you give up? Some of us never encounter those questions. And the reason we probably don't encounter those questions is because we don't believe in the future what Christian believed in. That there was something worth forfeiting the world for. Didn't Jesus say... It's better to lose the world and gain your soul. American Christians want to gain their soul and gain the world all at the same time and come to church and feel okay about it. But if we believe Jesus is coming back, if we believe the day of the Lord is coming, if we believe God is going to keep his promises, shouldn't it change how we think about the future? I mean, at least a little bit. How do you handle revenge? When someone hurts your reputation, do you feel like you're obligated to destroy theirs? As if you're the only judge they're ever going to have? As if God's never going to judge in the future? It says a lot about how we think about the day of the Lord when we act as if we are the only judge the people that hurt us will ever have. It's as if we forget that God is going to take care of those things. How do you talk about politics? Well, I got really quiet. Okay. Uh, You can talk about politics. I love political philosophy. I've read lots of books on political philosophy. It's a fun thing to talk about. And you can have your political positions. And by the way, there are some biblical truths that necessitate political positions. And there's going to be more of those things as time goes on. It's not going to get easier. 
I don't mean what positions you take. The Bible should make some positions very clear on that. I mean, how do you talk about politics? Dennis Goldford wrote this article called Fear and Voting on the Christian Right. Um, He published this really interesting study, and it's about how political consultants help their candidates win evangelical votes. And you know what their single most powerful strategy is? Appeal to their fear. Because political consultants know if you want to get the evangelicals vote, those are the easiest people in the world to scare. You can read it for yourself. It's there. Does it bother you that political consultants talk about you and me that way? That we're easy to scare because we're so worried about the future? Man, I hope that bothers you. I hope that bothers you. Because we claim to believe that a day of the Lord is coming when God, not us, not our governments, and not our parties, not our ideas, when God is going to make everything right. But do we really believe that? When you hear bad news about a friend, have you ever said this? Well, that's just life. That's just life. Is that how you talk about suffering? And do you forget that life is so much more than this temporary suffering? Because of all that we have to look forward to? No, suffering, that's, that's not life. That is a very, very small slice of the pie in the grand scheme of things. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Babylon and all it stands for will fall. They won't be calling the shots anymore. Because God is going to rule the earth that he created. So Obadiah pleads with us. He pleads with God's people. Don't forget the day of the Lord. If you've been wronged, listen. God is a holy and righteous judge. And he'll take care of that. If you're feeling down, remember that Jesus is coming back. If you feel worn out because you see evil running rampant and you think, no one's doing anything to stop this, well, you may be right, and sometimes that is a problem. But evil will not run rampant forever. (laughs) Jesus is coming. As a Christian, we have to be more than against Babylon. Now, it's good to be against Babylon. We need to be against Babylon. We don't want to compromise to Babylon. And we don't want our church to compromise to Babylon and to the values of this world. But we have to be more than against Babylon. We have to know that we have the upper hand. That in the end, God wins. Their mountain will fall. But God is a mountain that will never fall. And we will be his people. And we will live with him 